Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. In November 2019, my wife and I were living over in the postcard-imaged city of Oxford in the UK. It is just like you could imagine, tea scones, Beatrix Potter. (laughs) Uh, There we were in Oxford in 2019. Julie was busy at work um, as a doctor, paying the bills for me to go off to class there in the city. And... um, During that time, we had a guest speaker come from the United States. Uh, Her name was Becky Pippett. Some of you may have heard of Becky. Uh, She's an author, a speaker. One of her better-known books from uh, a couple of decades ago now was Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World, which is all about personal evangelism. Uh, There's one, one thing that she was doing, though, in the middle of this class that really kind of I don't want to say bothered me, but I just found it so unrelatable. She was just telling story after story of her personal evangelistic uh, encounters of how she was just sharing Jesus with this person on the bus. Or, you know, then she got on an airplane and she just struck up a conversation with this young gentleman about Jesus. And I was just thinking, how do you do that? Every single time, every encounter, every time she walks down the road and opens up her eyes, it's like there's somebody for for her to talk to about Jesus. Um, so towards the end of the lesson, we had an opportunity to, um, to ask questions. And I just said, how are you on all the time? Like, I, I just forget, frankly. And if I'm not forgetting, I'm in the middle of my own business and I'm just not thinking about anyone else other than myself. Uh, if I'm on a plane next to somebody, I'm thinking about how frustrated I am that, I, that you know, if the arm is on the armrest. How, how are you on all the time? <laughs> and she said, oh, I'm not on all the time, David. I'm not on all the time. But I pray every morning that God would turn me on when I need to be turned on. I thought, oh. So she said, every morning I pray, Lord, open my eyes, open my ears, open my mouth to speak as you would have me speak, to hear as you would have me hear, to see as you would have me see. And I've I've done that. Sometimes I forget to do that, but I've done that myself, and it has changed my life. I'll never forget that lesson. The need to prepare your heart every single day that you might then pay attention to what it is that the Lord has for you and then have the faith to do whatever it is in the moment. We're going to consider an example of precisely that today from the reading that Julie just read out for us in Acts chapter 3. So while you're turning there, let me just reorient you real quick with what we're doing here at Calvary Chapel. We're studying this New Testament book of uh, Acts. It was written by a bloke named Luke. We're calling this series To the Ends of the Earth. Hopefully you'll see why by the end of today. Uh, this first century author named Luke, he was a physician, um, which is interesting when we get into this text because there's a medical miracle that takes place. Uh, coming after the Gospel of Luke, he also wrote that Gospel. This is basically part two or volume two of Luke's writings. In fact, that's the way he introduces the book of Acts when you go back to Acts chapter 1. He tells his readers that this is his second account of what Jesus continued to do after his resurrection, after his ascension through the apostles. Well, we studied Acts chapter 1 seven weeks ago. 
uh, had a break for Easter. So today we're moving into chapter 3, but we're not just turning a page here uh, when we come into chapter 3. We're swinging into a new era of redemptive history, of salvation history. God the Father is the architect of salvation. He was planning it from the foundations of the world. In the fullness of time, he, the Father, sent God the Son to earth, named Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone of salvation, who was born, who lived, who died, and who rose to life, and by this time in Acts has now ascended to be with the Father in heaven. And as the Father sent God the Son, so God the Son sent God the Spirit, the promised helper, to continue the work of Jesus' ministry here on earth by enabling and empowering God's people, the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, which is you and me, to continue his ministry. And over these past couple of weeks here at Calvary, we've been seeing how the Spirit came upon the disciples there at a feast called Pentecost in Jerusalem, enabling them and empowering them to be about the the work of Jesus on earth. And Mick taught us last week that there were up to 3,000 people who came to believe in Jesus during that one festival. But as is always the case when it comes to growth, when things grow, they encounter resistance. Whether that's a seed trying to break through the soil, whether that is a caterpillar trying to escape its cocoon, or whether that's a person trying to overcome their personal fears. With growth comes resistance. But with resistance comes an opportunity for further growth and transformation. Overcoming their fears, a person can stand strong and courageous. Escaping its cocoon, a caterpillar can emerge as a beautiful butterfly. Breaking through the soil, a seed can bloom into a fragrant flower. These are illustrative illustrative of a new salvation era that we are about to walk into here in our study through the book of Acts. The church is established The life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus is her cornerstone. The apostles are now busy at work laying the foundation. And you and I, the church, are commissioned to continue to build atop that foundation today, 2,000 years later. And like the early church, when you and I encounter resistance today, that resistance, painful as it may be, is but an occasion for more growth and transformation. You know, persecuted Christians throughout church history were kind of like a stubborn bushfire. You throw a brick into the flames and you watch those embers scatter and burn all the brighter with the good news of Jesus. That's what we're going to see here over and over again in these next few weeks now as we move into this phase of Acts. Persecution, resistance comes against the church and it just spreads and spreads and spreads and spreads. Last week, Mick more or less summarized uh, at the end of chapter two what it is that we're going to be looking at here today as we move into chapter three. Let me just reorient you with that now. Uh, Acts chapter two, verse 42 and following. And they, that's the church, the believers in Jerusalem, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Sounds too good to be true. Sounds wonderful, so idyllic. The church is born and it's just growing. But hold it. With growth comes resistance. But before we see that here, notice at the end of Acts 2 how this just sets up what we're looking at today. A couple of things to notice. The apostles attending the temple, possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all, wonders and signs the Lord added to their number. People were praising God. Now turn over to Acts chapter 3 and check this out. Peter and John, two apostles, were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter said, I have no silver and gold, possessions and belongings. But what I do have, I give to you, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Wonders and signs were being done. And leaping up, he stood up and began to walk and entered the temple with them. The Lord added to their number. Walking and leaping and praising God. Praising God. The connection is obvious, right? Acts 2, 42 through 47 is a summary of this phase of redemptive history we're looking at, and we happen to look at the first cab off the rank when it comes to this miracle of the healing of a lame man. It's the first of 14 apostolic, so done by the apostles, miracles in the book of Acts. And here is where the resistance begins. Now, in one sense, uh, this miracle has notable parallels in the Gospels with Jesus' healing of the paralytic, say, in Luke 5. Jesus calls his first disciples, and then he goes out and heals a paralytic man. Here, the apostles call the first converts to Christianity, and then they go and heal a paralytic man. So there is similarity, but there's also a marked difference that's significant. Here in Acts 3, the apostles appeal to the name and the authority of Jesus Christ. In Luke 5, Jesus does not appeal to the name and authority of anyone other than himself. Why? Because there is no higher name or authority other than Jesus. Again, he's the cornerstone orienting the entire foundation that the apostles' ministry and you and I are now building. To be a Christian is to continue the earthly ministry of Jesus. That's what we're all about here at Calvary Chapel, Newcastle, continuing a ministry that was begun by him. But how do we go about that? What does that look like? Give me something practical, David. You're saying big words like doing Jesus' ministry. What does that look like? Because I'm about to go out into my work week. I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> to, to consider some of the really practical ways we can unpack what it looks like to continue the work of Jesus' ministry, I want to try and squeeze out of our text today four principles. Number one, be prepared. Number two, pay attention. Number three, have faith. Number four, bear witness. We're going to be looking at these in turn. First of all, be prepared. 
Verse 1, look at this. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. A significant theme in the book of Acts is how the covenant traditions of Judaism relate to the new covenant of Christianity. Uh, This young, growing, emerging community of so-called believers. This all comes to a boiling point in Acts chapter 15 that we'll see in a couple of months when we get there at the first church council. But early on, like here in Acts chapter 3, the apostles evidently continued to live as observant Jews. This explains why we see Peter and John here in Acts chapter 3 going up to the temple. Now we read that it was the ninth hour. That means it was nine hours from sunrise in this part of the world. So we're talking roughly 3 p.m. in the afternoon. The Jews went to temple a total of three times a day, so this would have been the second of three temple visitations. Now think about that. Three temple visits a day. That's 21 times a week. Think about that next time you want to hedge on coming here once a week on a Sunday. It'd be like tools down. Whatever you're doing, wherever you are, what work you're doing, tools down, got to go to the temple to pray Worship and make sacrifice. That's a lot. But seriously, let's think about that as it relates to us coming to church today. Paul says in Ephesians, the church exists to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Of course, God can and does equip us outside of the church. But today, the church, not this building, but the the gathering of people, the community of God's people... The primary means through which God equips the church is in local church assembly. Church attendance is not like a legalistic Judaist temple requirement. That's not what we're talking about here, but it is basic for Christian believers because this is how we visibly express that invisible relationship that we have to one another through Jesus. Peter and John were invested in the local community. They had a pattern of preparedness in their lives, and so should we. Some Christians uh, argue, might argue, I've spoken to, to many who believe this, that it's just not necessary to go to church to tick some sort of box. What really matters is not coming here to a formal gathering, to an establishment, but that we live a lifestyle of fellowship with fellow believers. I disagree. Sure, we should have a lifestyle of fellowship with Christian believers, of course. But the New Testament is pretty clear when it describes the structured, the ecclesiastical, the organised assembling of God's people in a local place. Local church assembly is a place where gifts are distributed, where grace is varied and measured out to people differently according to their own idiosyncrasies and wonderfully unique ways that God has made them. And offices are established. We've just had an appointing ceremony today. People are positioned to minister that we might all be equipped to grow to the full measure and stature of Christ. I get it, right? I've said it before. I'll say it again. I'm preaching to you as much as I am to myself because we think of this stuff when we're preaching because it comes to our minds. That's why we say it, right? There are days when I would love to stay at home and not come to church. It would just be a lot easier, frankly. I get it. Just stay at home with the family. And there are times and seasons for rest. I do not want to minimise that or take away from that. 
But we make a mistake if we suppose that being equipped for the work of the ministry is somehow at odds with something like family time. Because for most of us, our primary ministry is our family. We come to church, we, we come to church to love our families by actively participating in a life-giving church community, by being equipped and by equipping others, by being challenged and by challenging others, by being encouraged and encouraging others. We can love our families in a way that we would really struggle to do if we didn't get together. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. They demonstrated a pattern of preparedness. And here's the thing about preparation. If you've got a big soccer match coming up, you don't prepare on game day, do you? It's too late by game day. Preparation. Pre-before. Paration meaning to make ready. We make ready before game day, and if we fail to do so, not only will we be ineffective on game day, but what does that failure to prepare communicate to those around us? If we don't show up to practice, we're communicating to the coach or to our teammates that this game doesn't really matter. And in that sense, our absence can be a real discouragement to others. Here's the point. Failure to be prepared for the ministry God has for us is ultimately a problem with our worship. How we view God and how we view his plans for us and the equipping that he has for us. That's why local church attendance amongst a lot of other things, I'm just picking on one example here right, about being prepared, is just so important. We are to be prepared in season and out of season, says Paul. We are to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks, says Peter. So let me ask you, what are you doing to be prepared? What are your patterns of preparedness? What are your disciplines, material or spiritual? What measures do you have in place to hear from God, to help you discern God's word from all of the other words out there? And there are many voices competing for your attention every single day. Netflix podcasts, Bible commentaries, coffee table conversations, politics, your own head. How can you discern what is God's word versus what your thoughts are? What does devotion to prayer look like for you? Do you struggle to pray? I do. <laughs> yeah, I have to put reminders and alarms on my phone. It goes off all the time. Ask my wife. I forget these things all the time. So here's a challenge for you. Actually, no, I'm, I'm going to dare you. I dare you, everyone here under the sound of my voice, I'm giving you a dare right now this week. I dare you to pray this prayer or something like it every single morning for this, just one week. One week. Something to the effect of, Lord, Today I ask that you will open my eyes, open my ears, and open my mouth to see, hear, and speak the things that you would have me do today. I'm going to forget. Remind me in the moment. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Put a reminder in your phone. Do whatever you need to do. Pray that one prayer and come back and tell me next Sunday what happened this last week, this next week. And I'm sure if something happens and you want to share it, I'm sure Mick will give you a space in the announcements to share it. That's how confident I am that stuff is going to happen in your life. I dare you. That's just one simple way that you can be prepared. 
May we be a people patterned by preparedness for the work God has, because then we will know what to pay attention to. That's our second point here. Look here at verse 2. A man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. A man lame from birth. It literally means from the mother's womb. This dude did not know what it was to walk around properly. We know from the next chapter that this lame man was more than 40 years old. So this is not like a young spring chicken. We have a bloke here who for decades knew nothing but a life of disability. A disability that robbed him from doing anything else but begging for alms. And even then, he still needs people to carry him to the temple to do that. Now, alms here, it's an old English word which derives from a Greek word which literally means pity or mercy. So to give alms means to dispense pity or mercy. And for observant Jews, charity was a religious virtue, usually in the material sense of giving money or some sort of food or goods. So to have a lame man begging like this outside the temple was almost expected in those days and the, the religious or the pious at the time could tick their own little legalistic box by giving them something. But think about this. We know from Acts 2.46 that day by day the apostles, including Peter and John, were attending the temple together. So think about what that means. That means that they would have walked past this lame man and prob probably hundreds of times and never done a single thing about his lameness. You know how problems can sometimes be right there in front of you and you just don't see them? <laughs> this becomes a part of the fractured social landscape that we're all accustomed to. This lame man was probably like that, just another piece of furniture. People would see him as just one of those guys. But seldom would they actually stop and look at him. When you and I wake up and go about our daily lives, our senses are bombarded by so much stuff. We get so much sensory input through our five senses that we just mentally, psychologically can't cope with it all. We see all sorts of things, we hear all sorts of things, we feel all sorts of things, but we don't often pay attention to them all equally at the same time. We can't, it's not humanly possible. So we're selective. Consciously or unconsciously, we learn this usually from a young age, we're selective about what we choose to take in. By the way, this is what optical illusions demonstrate to us, that we are unable to take everything in from all different angles at one go. Now, all of us have different criteria for what we select to take in and what we choose to block out. That is informed by usually our childhoods, uh, our past experiences, our social, ethnic backgrounds, our education, our language, our opportunities. But here's the thing. Whatever we consciously or unconsciously let in, whatever we select to look at, right, those things... Whatever they are, they become visible to us. And in becoming visible to us, we are, in a sense, attributing to them a certain degree of value. That's why they've become visible. 
We see value in them, so we let them in. You know, for example, if you're driving down the road, you're probably looking at the car in front of you, I hope you are, <laughs> because there is value to what's going on right in front of you. You may not have noticed peripherally what's going on with the person walking the dog on the sidewalk. You may, sensory input may have registered them, but you may not be looking at them, so to speak. That's just one very simple example of what I'm talking about. To give you a little bit more kind of complex one, I'll give you one from this week. We uh, had a dear friend come over who's known us for over 10 years, and um, she let me read a, a book of hers that she had read that she found really impactful on her life. And oh, this is months ago, I, I don't even remember. But um, I was upstairs working from home, and I heard her catching up with my wife Julie downstairs, and as she was down there, I just thought, oh, I need to get the book back to her. So I was, my head was in workspace. Any of you know me know I can be caffeinated and only looking at one thing at a time. And so I was in that zone, right? And so I thought, oh, I hear her voice. I'll go grab the book and, and hand it back to her. And so I grabbed the book. I went downstairs. My head is still upstairs, so to speak. Uh, and I come down and I hand it to her. And she goes, oh, great. And I said, yeah, thanks. And she goes, what do you think? And I thought, I didn't think. I spoke. Uh, I think, I think that's heretical. I, don't think he's, I think he's wrong on Jesus. I think he's wrong on the Bible, and I think he's wrong on the church. <laughs> and then I was like, anyway, uh, we, okay, bye, and went up back upstairs. <sighs> Mick's been there with me plenty of times. <laughs> um, I didn't think about it. I don't even remember that conversation. I just remember thinking it's good that I logistically got that thing done off my to-do list because I gave her the book back. So I went back upstairs, got back to work, got on with life. We had dinner with them, uh, our friends, the other day, and that had affected her a lot. And she shared it with me, and she said, I just got to get this off my chest. That really hurt me. <laughs> um, she wasn't visible to me in that moment because I was, my values were upstairs, so to speak, right? I was in the middle of work, right? Does that make sense? So we can have social blind spots because we don't make things visible to us, we block things out. We can do that socially, we can do it on the road, we can do it. This, this is why we have culture wars, because people have certain social, cultural backgrounds where things are very visible to them because of scar tissue in their life, and they're incredibly acute and valuable to them. I don't have any experiences like that, so this is all they see. I make a dumb comment like what I did to my friend, and bang, we have a culture war on our hands. That's what's going on online, that's what's going on in our politics, that's what's going on in so much of the social issues today because we do not make things visible, therefore they're not valuable to us. Hope that makes sense. Okay, back to Acts chapter 3. <laughs> in the first century, in Jewish history, we are at a period known as Second Temple Judaism and during this time, there were certain things that were valuable to the Jews. One of the restrictions that they had at this point was who could and could not go into the temple. According to Jewish customs, people with physical disabilities like this lame man were not allowed to enter into the temple. So for decades, this man would have sat outside the beautiful gate with a disability because he was not worthy. He was not beautiful enough to enter in. So he was not visible and therefore was not valuable to the Jewish people in that time and place. People would see him, but they wouldn't look at him until this day. Until this day in Acts chapter 3. The lame man, upon seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, the word for seeing is generically looking. He wasn't specifically looking at Peter and John, he was just looking out at the crowd. 
The layman, upon seeing Peter and John, asked to receive alms. Well, Peter stops in his tracks. Why? Because his ears were open. His eyes were open. We read here, Peter directed his gaze at him. The word is very different from generally seen to specifically, intentionally, willfully aligning his head, heart and mind towards this individual. He stops. This lame man was visible to him and therefore valuable to him. And their ears were opened. Their eyes were opened. And now look at what he says. His mouth was opened. Peter said to the lame man, look at us. Don't generically see what's going on. Stop. Look at us. Me, says Peter. And it says here that he fixed his attention on them. That's again a different phrase. It's really interesting to look at the phrases here in the Greek. I don't know about you, but when I walk past homeless people, say uh, down on Derby Street or something here, holding out you know, one of those cardboard signs uh, with a message asking for money, I don't typically stop and make eye contact with them. I try to avoid it, if I'm honest. It's like I'm holding up my own sign that says, don't look at me because I'm not going to look at you and we can just pretend like we never saw each other or just walk past. Why do we do that? I assume I'm not the only one who does this, right? Maybe I am. (laughs) Because if you can avoid looking at that person, then they remain invisible to you and therefore they're not your problem. Sure, you might see them peripherally, but you can avoid having to pay attention. But as soon as you stop, And as soon as you look them in the eye, they become visible to you and probably uncomfortably valuable. Because no longer are they just a random homeless person with a sign. That is somebody's son. That is somebody's daughter. That is somebody's baby, child. That is a precious human person made in the image of Almighty God. You do not get a higher value than that. And become invisible they become valuable. And that can be very uncomfortable because you were just walking down Derby Street minding your own business. You have enough worries in your own life to make their sorry story a part of yours. <laughs> but that's the point. They have a story. They have a story. And there, but for the grace of God, go I. Go you. This man suffered a disability for 40 years. In all likelihood, Jesus would have walked past this man and done nothing. But unlike others, Jesus would have known that this was not his ministry. He knew that there was a day reserved when Peter and John would have their eyes, their ears and their mouths open to do a work that God had prepared in advance for them to do. Do not miss the moments of ministry God has prepared specifically for you. You, that no one else can do, that God has reserved in advance for you to do. Don't miss them because you weren't paying attention. You know what happens when you don't pay attention? The Bible says you quench the spirit. You pour water onto the spiritual fire, diminishing your usefulness for God's kingdom, and he'll go elsewhere to a willing heart. But if we are prepared, if we will pay attention, then instead of quenching the spirit, we'll contribute to the movement of the spirit, fanning the flame, so to speak, so that when those embers scatter, they will take off in an uncontrollable rage, in a positive sense of God's grace, love, kindness, mercy, and forgiveness. That's what Peter and John are doing here. 
They were prepared. They paid attention. They allowed themselves to stop and enter into the brokenness of this man, as uncomfortable as it may have been for them. That's a, it's a vulnerable place to be, by the way. You know, it takes courage. It takes mental, emotional, spiritual, sometimes physical stamina to allow yourself to be open to the problems of people around you. But you can do it if you're prepared. And that's exactly what we're called to be as a church. To be prepared, to pay attention. Thirdly here, have faith. Verse 6, Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. This past Wednesday at Bible study, I was sharing a little too much, as I tend to do. And I asked the question, I wonder if Peter hesitated at all in this moment. I mean, imagine you're Peter for a moment. You stop. People are now having to walk around you at this very pious hour of the afternoon to get into the temple. You're holding up the social traffic. People are probably looking at you because you're that fisherman turned preacher boy who got a lot of attention the other day. You've got a history of worrying about what people in a crowd think of you. So you might be tempted to be insecure in this moment. But here you are, and you stop, and you look at this lame man, and you tell him, rise up and walk. Would there have been a thought in your mind like, oh, I hope this works. If it doesn't, it's not going to reflect well on the name of Jesus I'm throwing down right now. It's not going to reflect well on the church that I was just preaching about my sermon the other day. What kind of faith are we talking about here? that would stop in front of a gawking crowd ready to throw rocks at you anyway because you're this new movement called the Christians, called the way. What kind of faith does it take to stop and to say to a lame man that everyone knows he's lame, rise up and walk? I mean, it does take active faith on your part. Make no mistake about it. One commentator is really neat. He says, the power was Christ's, but the hand was Peter's. You have a role in this. So is there any doubt in Peter's mind? Well, after my oversharing on Wednesday, I talked a lot. Um, I had a good debrief with my wife, and some of the things that I was saying, I, I didn't realize how dramatic I was sound, sounding to my friends in Bible study. It sounded like a bit of an existential crisis, but I wasn't there, um, <laughs> I don't think. Um, sometimes my execution and my attention can be misaligned. Please have patience. I've since come to realize, though, uh, how my line of questioning about Peter in this context was a little bit misguided. Of course, we all have doubts from time to time, but in the context of Acts chapter 3, my Bible studying musing missed the point of this message that I now find myself preaching to you. I don't think Peter would have found himself doubting in that moment, because that moment would never have arrived for Peter if he wasn't already prepared and paying attention to the things of the Lord. He was already faithfully invested by this point. You see, going, you're going to be tired by being prepared, pay attention, be faithful by the end of today. But if you're prepared, if you're paying attention, and therefore you're already in this position of having the faith to do God's work. 
The reason we avoid looking at the problems that, that are all around us is because we aren't prepared, we aren't paying attention. So when those problems come before us, they expose something in us and that makes us feel awkward. That makes us feel vulnerable. That makes us feel insecure. That makes us feel doubtful, right? But if we are prepared, if we are paying attention, it follows that we will therefore have faith in the moment, spirit-empowered, bold faith, because the faith isn't in us and our abilities. It's in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This is not about my name, which is what my questioning was suggesting. This is not about your name. This is not about Peter's name. This is about the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and what comes with a name. More than I have time to tell you or show you, stick around for the next couple of months. We'll be looking at some of this in the book of Acts. But I will say this, the repeated references to the power and authority of Jesus' name in the book of Acts, it is in keeping with his purposed statement set at the outset in Acts chapter 1 about the ongoing of Jesus' ministry in the church, the continuing power of Jesus, which is now manifest in the indwelling Holy Spirit. You see, where John's gospel is explicit in calling Jesus God, Luke shows implicitly that Jesus is God by Jesus' actions and God's vindication of those actions. It's because of who Jesus is and all Jesus has done and continues to do in the church that we can have faith in him. We pray in Jesus' name because to deal with Jesus means to deal with the one who has authority as God himself. There is no higher name. There is no other authority I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Down in verse 16, Peter's going to start to explain what happened here to the Jews looking on, and he's going to say, don't look at me. I didn't do this. Jesus did it. In a couple of weeks, we'll see how Peter and John get arrested for this. The resistance comes, right? And they're there before the Jewish high priest in, in the courts. And what are they going to say? Don't look at us. Jesus did it. And the high priests are going to look at him and say, boys, you cannot speak this name anymore. And they're just going to look at the high priests and say, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. It is his name. This is all about his power. This is all about his authority, his ongoing earthly ministry. It's like Daniel who says, don't pray. So what does he do? He goes home and he prays about not praying. There's a debate within the church today about whether Christians should just do good works, you know, run a soup kitchen or something like that, and, and just do the outreach, social justice of some kind, some sort of social gospel action, but refrain from mentioning the name of Jesus. And I get that there are some contexts where that is not possible. I'm speaking about that. But let me say this, folks, that never works. It's never succeeded within the history of evangelicalism. Reconciliation with other people is not reconciliation with God. Social action is not evangelism. The two are not mutually exclusive. Please don't mishear me, right? That's clear from this passage. The man gets up and walks physically, but he's also by faith leaping and praising God. Growth comes through Jesus. That means that the resistance that will come will come because of the powerful name of Jesus. But again, that resistance is just another opportunity for further growth and transformation. When it becomes all about us and our actions, 
then the salvation that we offer is not the Lord's, it's our own. You know what happens when the church gets ashamed of the gospel and just runs a soup kitchen with no Jesus? It's that. And I'm speaking from personal experience here because I've been here before. When I make my social action all about me as a Christian, I tend to become bitter and I start to look at others and I start to say, why aren't they doing more? Why aren't they putting more money on the table? I begin to look in. I begin to isolate myself. And I begin, ironically, to not be very sociable. (laughs) But when we do it all for the name of Jesus, it's not a comparative thing. It's a worship thing. And there's joy. The successes don't go to the head. The failures don't go to the heart because both the head and the heart are compelled by the love of Jesus. That's why we reach out our hands to others, as Peter did, because the love of Christ compels us. Now notice what Peter says here. I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. Did Peter really have no money on him? I don't know. But I don't think that's the point. Regardless of what coin Peter may or may not have had in his pocket, what he's saying to this man is, for you, sir, no, I have no money. Because that's not what you need. How does Peter know what this man needs? Because again, he's prepared He's paying attention. And so by faith, he now looks at this man and he sees his need. The lame man was asking for alms. Jesus, through Peter, gives him something that means he will never have to ask for alms again. All of us live for silver and gold. We all have questions. We all have expectations. We all have unmet desires. If I could just pay off the mortgage, then I'd be happy. If I could just get a mortgage, then I'd be happy. If I could just find job satisfaction, then I'd be happy. If I could just get a job, then I'd be happy. If I could just not be single anymore, then I would be happy. If I could just not be married anymore, then I would be happy. If I could just not suffer with this pain anymore, then I would be happy. If I could just feel anything, even for a moment, then I would be happy. Whatever the disability, whatever the shortcoming, whatever the unfulfilled desire, the opposite offering is not a sure fix. Not everything that glitters is gold. There is a true treasure that is only found in heaven. And Peter is emphatic here that this healing is from above. Verse 16, that is, this was done by faith in Jesus' name. There are difficulties in life. Please don't mishear me. Please don't think I'm minimizing the issues that you may or may not be going through right now. Life can be hard, but there is one thing that you must know, that if you are to endure those hardships, you need a relationship with Jesus and a relationship that you are actively working on by being prepared, by paying attention, and by having faith in the moment of trial, that he is working something in you, even in that moment, that carries an eternal weight of glory. The silver and gold will come and they will go. So will your legs. So will your health. But you don't even need to be able to walk. You can praise God without arms and legs. Just ask this guy, Nick Wojcik. As bad as suffering is, and as committed to ending it as God is, the suffering is not the primary problem, it is a symptom of the problem. 
And the problem is sin. That is why Peter says down in verse 19, we need to repent and we need to turn back that our sins may be blotted out. We can live with suffering if it's dealt with. Growth comes through resistance, right? But man cannot live by bread alone because one morsel of sin will do more irreversible damage in your life than an entire life of a debilitating disability. And I pray that the Lord never tests this, what I'm preaching to you right now, in my own life. Because I don't know if I'll have the resolve. I don't know. I'm not there, right? You may be. But I don't always get a choice about what it is I'm going to say up here. There are some things that are just uncomfortably truth that need to be spoken. And this is one of them. And perhaps somebody here needs to hear it today. This miracle is a visible sign of the invisible work of God in the life of a Christian. When we are saved, Jesus comes outside the beautiful gate. He picks us up from a life of crippling sin and he makes us beautiful. He makes us acceptable. He turns our mourning into dancing where we now walk into his temple and leap and praise for joy. Be prepared. Pay attention. Have faith. Finally, bear witness. Look here at verse 9. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Notice this, the man who everyone would have seen but nobody cared to look at is now the center of attention. The people saw him. They recognized him. And upon looking at him, what did they see? A transformation to the tune of praise to God. Again, this miracle is not about the lame walking. It's about the name of Jesus Christ. In our modern English, post-enlightened world, miracles are just not cool. <laughs> Christians often get embarrassed about them because you know, they're low-hanging fruit for religious critics. But if you're a Christian, or if you're, if you're here and you're not a, a Christian, I want to say to you, don't get caught up on the miracles. Don't let some prior idea about nature or physics get in the way of what Christianity is all about. Christianity is all about Jesus. It's all about his life, his character, his love, his humility, the evidence of his resurrection that Peter will talk about here in verse 15. Miracles point to him. They are a sign. That's one of the New Testament words for miracle, by the way, in the Greek. It is semion, sign. Think of a stop sign. It's not the hexagonal sheet of red painted metal that makes the stop sign meaningful, is it? It's what it points to. New South Wales law. Same with miracles. The healing of this lame man points to something, to someone beyond the healing. It points to the one who Peter says down in verse 13, that you Jews delivered over to be denied in the presence of Pilate and you killed. Be prepared, pay attention, have faith, and you will find yourself standing in a temple of people looking at you like Peter and John, bearing witness to that man. The one who was killed, 
but is now evidently alive because look at what he's doing in the power of this man now standing up and walking and leaping and praising God. Now being devout Jews, these people in the temple, they would have looked upon this man's situation probably like the scene in Isaiah 35. The lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Isaiah 35 describes what is going to happen in the future at the end of the world when Jesus comes back to restore all things. Now Peter, uh, John Coe will show us next week that Peter picks up on this idea down in verse 21 when he says, the time for restoring of all things about which God spoke about through the mouth of his holy prophets long ago, like Isaiah. Peter is connecting this miracle to that future event. But for now, just consider this much. You know when people say that they cannot believe in miracles because they break the laws of nature or whatever? I think that is a mischaracterization of miracles. When you look at the miracles in the Gospels, every single one of them, every single one of them is restorative in some way. Now what does that tell us? It tells us at least two things. Number one, that the true nature of this world is not necessarily the material. <laughs> miracles point to the fact that God didn't invent lame people. He didn't create blind people, cancer, disease, suffering, death. These are not according to God's created purpose and design. As one commentator says, Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They're the only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized and wounded. And the second thing it tells us is that the fact that miracles are always restorative that God is an enemy to suffering, to, to pain, and to death. The fact that God does miracles tells us that he is no happier about the sorry state of this world than you and I are. That he hates the fact that this man was lame for 40 years of his life. How do you know that? Because he heals him. He restores him to perfect health. Miracles are a glimpse in the present of the final restoration of all things when Jesus will come and make all things new. And if you and I are God's people here today, then we too should consider ourselves enemies to pain, suffering and death. We too should work to alleviate it wherever we see it, in whatever place God has us in today. Don't let that overwhelm you. We're not all called, for example, to geopolitics to try and sort out what's happening in Russia and Ukraine or even in Sudan. Don't be overwhelmed by that burden, but know that God has you in a place and a space where you are called to something and you do have a responsibility there. Make sure that the people in those places and spaces are visible to you and therefore valuable to you. And that might mean giving silver and gold, right? There is nothing in this text that is anti-material provisions. But their giving is never at the expense of the gospel. Earlier this week, I was on the phone with one of the ministries we support as a church, Zoe's Place, a local organization committed to supporting mothers with unplanned pregnancies. That work began in uh, 2014 or 15 or something like that with some local doctors and pastors getting together because they were paying attention to the brokenness in the lives of these young mothers in distress. And by faith, they reached out, like Peter, to do something about it. That's restorative action, friends. So often God uses broken things to bring about change, and you can be an instrument of that change.
Become a part of the story of God's kingdom by taking the name of Jesus to the ends of this earth. And as you do, expect resistance because it just comes with the territory. So if you're with me, let's be prepared. Let's pay attention. Let's have faith. And let's be about the life-changing business of bearing witness to the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are a small church of people here in a sparsely populated part of planet Earth. But we are here. Uh, for such a time as this, we are here. Lord, I just ask that we would uh, hear and heed the practical message of this text. That we would be a people concerned to continue the work of Jesus' ministry. That we would be prepared in season and out of season, that we would pay attention, that we would have faith, and that we would bear witness to the name of Jesus. Because that's all that ultimately matters. Father, I ask for a renewed zeal amongst the people here to leave today emboldened for evangelism with ready eyes, ears, and mouths. Father, we don't have to pull off the impossible. You're not calling us to do that. You're going to finish this work. You started it and you'll finish it when you return. But in the interim, you provide the needs for the service you call us to. Lord, empower us by your Spirit to have a strength and a discipline and a fortitude and a humility of heart and a wisdom of mind to be about your work. Lord, I don't pray that you would just give us these things. I don't pray that you would just equip us with these things. I pray that you would impart yourself upon us and so fill us with these things in as much as you are in us. I don't ask for strength. I ask for you, the strong tower. I don't pray for peace. I ask for you, the prince of peace. I don't ask for joy. I pray for the fullness of joy that is your presence. Father, thank you for this fellowship. Thank you for the work you are doing here already in and through so many people. And as we now break bread and share a meal together, I just ask that you would nourish us, that we would be all the more uh, equipped to be about your business. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings. 